Hello and welcome back to the latest installment of the Music History Project. Today we're very excited to have a special guest with us as we talk about big star drummer and Ardent Studio CEO Jody Stevens. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale. And Dan Del Fiorentino. And Mike Mullins. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a program that is over 3,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. All right, so we're here today with our favorite reoccurring guest, our only reoccurring guest, Zach Phillips. Yay. Hi, Zach. Hey, all. <laughs> Welcome, Zach. Very thrilled to be here. Well, you know, originally it was Zach's idea for me to interview Jody, so it seemed only fitting to have you here with us in the studio to record this podcast, which we're very thrilled. Having Jody as a part of the NAM Oral History interview program has been awesome. So taking this interview, dissecting it, playing the whole thing today, talking about it with a big, big star fan, I think is very fitting. So very, very happy about it. Thank you, Dan. It's thrilling. So I guess a good place to start is just to talk a little bit about Jody and, and Big Star and why we are gathered here today. Do you want to give us a little of your impression of the background of the importance of Big Star? You know, there's that great quote by Brian Eno about the Velvet Underground um, that they only made 30, they, they only sold 30,000 albums and every single person who bought one formed a band. And I think yeah. that that couldn't be more applicable to Big Star. This is a band that I think went on to to form uh, the groundwork of indie rock, even though they weren't always recognized for it, mm. um, influencing everybody from R.E.M. to Wilco to Teenage Fan Club, and the list goes on, and even contemporaries. So one of the great unheralded bands uh, in rock history, and they made three perfect albums. Really, the, the indie rock and power pop pioneers Absolutely. Well, and the whole idea of the um, alternative rock genre really kind of grew up around this concept of what they created and the power pop. Absolutely. Without a doubt. And most importantly, and the point that I think um, I glean mostly from your comment is the influence. We're still talking about this band because they are still important. Their work is still influencing people and not just bands and not just musicians who want to get together with their buddies, but guys in the studio who say, wow, I want to mix an album like that. I want to bring in strings like that. I want to do this. I want to do that. So that's what's really awesome from our position in the music products industry to see them inspire other people in our industry, not just musicians. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, there's that great uh, Peter Buck of R.E.M. quote where he said, R.E.M. will never make an album as good as Big Star's third album. So that sort of <laughs> says it all. And, you know, Paul Westerberg, one of the great singer-songwriters of our time, wrote a song about Alex Chilton, the founder of Big Star. You can't get much much uh, better accolades than that. No doubt. So, Elizabeth, tell us, where are we going to start with our interview with Jody? We're going to first hear Jody talking about music as a child when he was growing up, one of Dan's 
all-time favorite questions, <laughs> as well as uh, his relationship with his brother, some concerts, playing the bass, and uh, also about Al Jackson and his first kit and the first number one record. That's a lot. That is a All lot. All right, Mike, go. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> well, one of the things I was hoping to talk with you about is your passion for music and how that developed. Did you have a lot of music in your house when you were a kid? My dad played guitar early on, and uh, but around the house we had an upright um, Steinway that they'd bought used someplace, and uh, not. <clears throat> and dad would play that from time to time, and then my older brother Jimmy kind of picked it up. But it's interesting, they would have bridge parties at the house, and you know, I have other couples over, and they would, they would play these Reader's Digest sort of mood albums, like Hawaiian music was one of them. And we had this, you know, this console stereo that they would play those things on. Uh, so, I, not really, I, it was, but you know, with the advent of the Beatles and I think our next door neighbor, Billy McMahon, had just bought Meet the Beatles and, and we went over next door and had a listen and kind of caught fire with us. And that's where our passion for it all. And then, you know, we heard stories about these guys from England and their haircuts and all that sort of thing, even a little prior to that. and then. Wow, I think he had Meet the Beatles before February of 64 when they did Ed Sullivan. Mm -hmm. And then we watched Ed Sullivan and then it was just, forget it. That was, that was a passion, that was a pursuit. And we knew what we were gonna be doing or try to do anyway. Had you played the drums before that? No, no, that was, I was 13 maybe, 64 February, so. No, I was, 65, I was 11. Oh. <laughs> I was born 52, 60, yeah, I was 11. So I hadn't picked up drums yet, and, uh, and maybe by the time 66, which is when the Beatles played in Memphis, played here on August 19, 1966, and uh, of course my brother and I had tickets, and we went to exchange our nighttime tickets to matinee tickets because my brother was in a band. He was 16, he was in a band with Andy Hummel. And uh, they, had a gig, they got a gig that night and we had exchanged our tickets and we thought, well, what the hell, we'll sneak backstage and, and see if we can catch a glimpse. And we got caught and they took our tickets away from us. But, uh, so I'm kind of digressing. We had done that at a Rolling Stones concert at the Coliseum. We kind of snuck back where, you know, the, the trucks would come in, limos and stuff. And, saw them get out of their car and that was fun and we we walked out and it was all pretty innocent and uh so i don't know yeah we it uh, that sparked the passion and then all the, the other kind of british british invasion artist kind of fueled that and, and then stacks came along and sam and dave and otis redding and 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 my brother jimmy and i put a soul band together and my brother played bass and um you know, because that stuff was gave me chill bumps too. Al Jackson and and um, somebody once asked me, you know, well, what kind of influence do you think Al Jackson was? And I pointed to there's a big star song called "Life Is Right," and uh, starts off with just two and four on the hi hat, and then and then I go da 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 da, 
and then one, two, three, four, like, uh, like Al Jackson did in Try a Little Tenderness, because he started off with that simple beat. And then once he changed to one, two, three, four on the, the kind of cross snare thing, it just, the whole song just, wow, took on a different feel and, and uh, yeah, it, it, that was a powerful moment. Something as simple as that and the power it had made an impact. So I, that's kind of what I did on Life is Right, the intro there. Did you see him at all perform or was he mostly doing recordings? I never saw Al Jackson perform live uh, the, that I can remember. I remember seeing the Barquets, they played a dance and uh, never got to see Otis Redding. My wife got to see Otis Redding, but uh, never got to see him. Um, yeah, I don't think I've, except for the Barquets, I don't think I ever saw any of the Stax artists live. Mm. Um, but I got to, to, I met Isaac Case a few times, and, and uh, we would frequent Whole Foods here. That's <laughs> kind of run into him there. <coughs> How did you get your first kit? My parents bought me my first kit. It was probably a kit from the 50s, because it was already old, and and uh, it was just two mounted toms, a uh, bass drum and a snare, no floor. And um, yeah, I'd, I'd been playing snare drum in the, in the junior high, seventh grade band in eighth grade. And I don't know why I even bothered to go on into eighth grade with it. I guess because it was just, at least I got to play a drum. And, uh, but it all had nothing to do with what I really wanted to do. And I couldn't, even after all that time, I couldn't really read music. I just kind of memorize what people were doing before me and play it back whenever that band director would get to me. I was always like fourth or fifth chair. Um, so that's when I got that first kit, and then uh, I replaced that kit right after Number One Record, and I uh, got a new kind of bigger set of Ludwigs, and uh, it was kind of the first oversized kit that they put out put together and, and put out and so I've had that ever since served me well okay so what is your impression Mike when you just hear his voice I mean this is a guy who obviously is very passionate about what he does what comes to your mind when you hear these stories I mean it just sounds like someone who is doing um, exactly what they were meant to do you know um, being around music and just consuming everything related to music it's just he's he's living the dream as they say <laughs> and you know what's behind this to me is you know there's a real tragic story behind Jody and even though it's um, not something he brings up in every conversation he hasn't yet talked about it in the interview but just in his aged voice if that's a if, if that's a uh a term I can use. Um, I to me, you know, he is very methodical about what he says. He is very meaningful about what he says, and I think the reason for that is he has lived through an awful lot and wants to just kind of get to the point, and he wants to make his statement, and um, that makes for a very compelling podcast interview for sure. Any thoughts on that, Zach? Uh, he's the only surviving member of Big Star, and he carries that torch. I think with great humility and he represents the band's legacy um 
in a beautifully elegant way. You know, this is somebody who, um, you know, he's not only a great drummer, but he also penned a couple of Big Star's most memorable songs. So, um, yeah, I, I think of him as he's one of the, one of the great custodians of a legacy in our, in rock music. And if we can make a little plug to our uh, membership that have retail stores, I think uh, it's important to pause for a minute and talk a little bit about the the birth of this band and where they grew up and how they formed in Memphis, Tennessee, surrounded by the accessibility of musical instruments and having a fantastic variety of music stores in and around that area uh, I think was certainly a big part of it. I mean, we have uh, friends at Amro Music who have provided musical instruments for Stack Records, and I think uh, uh, Booker T of the MGs got his very first musical instrument over there. It was a clarinet, not a Hammond B3. Um, of course, Elvis and all his buddies got their instruments over at a place called OK Hauk, which is where B.B. King got his. I mean, just in that small little area uh, of one city, there are a number of um, important stores, a couple of which don't get brought up too often in the interviews, but uh, Jody brings them up uh, um, as being very influential for him. And I think that's uh, Melody Music and the great uh, Memphis Drum Shop over there. Have you been to either? I'm, I'm afraid to say I haven't, but I do know Memphis Drum Shop well. And something to add about Memphis Drum Shop, Jody talks about just the sheer um, quantity of drums, that it's a drummer's paradise. Mm -hmm. uh, they also have MySymbol.com, which was a pioneer in showcasing symbols online using sound clips of symbols and really sell, kind of selling the romance of symbols online. They were, they were a pioneer in doing that. If I can add something too, Dan, one, something that struck me when I listened to this interview with Jody was what were they putting in the water in Memphis? There was so <laughs> much talent that came out of the city that, I mean, we thought about all the musical talent, but I think the one gentleman uh, who worked at Ardent was the founder of, was it FedEx or American Express? Oh, some right. Major organization. So there are all these little threads with, with uh, Ardent and Stacks that kind of carried out into um, the business community as well in Memphis. Yeah, good point. So let's get back to the interview. What are we going to hear next? We're going to hear talking, uh, Jody talking about just that, growing up in Memphis, the shops he went to, and where he kind of dabbled in getting his instruments. I don't know what the era was, but there was a OK Hauk music store. Did you ever go to the, or was that gone by the time you were? I remember that, uh, but I don't know. I can't ever remember visiting mm. that. It was Melody Music, which is where I bought my drum kit. And uh, of course now there's the Memphis Drum Shop and, and it's like the Disney World of, of drum shops. It's amazing, they have, you know, they have a room that's probably 50 by 50 or something and it's nothing but cymbals and they have all these drum kits set up and it's, uh, it's, it really is, it's an amazing sight to behold. But uh, yeah, Melody just had one drum kit set up and that happened to be the kit that I was looking for. And, it took me 15 seconds to say, hey, I'll take that one. So that was Jody talking about visiting Melody Music and the Memphis Drum Shop. And next, we're going to be hearing him speaking about getting together the band and the production of Hair at Memphis State. So tell me how the band got together. 
I, uh, Andy Hummel had played, as I mentioned earlier, had played in a band with my brother, but I hadn't seen him in a few years. And, and, uh, they, and my brother and I had a band together with uh, actually three lead singers, and we were just doing cover stuff. And, and uh, one of the lead singers wanted to audition for Hair. It would be the first college production of Hair at, at the university, what was then Memphis State, but it's now the University of Memphis. And uh, his name was Don McNatton. He said, we should, all, we should audition as a band. And I was still in high school. I was a senior. And, and uh, I thought, well, I could do that. I mean, I, other than that, I would have been scared to death to just go audition as a drummer. And uh, we auditioned kind of as a, as a band, and, and uh, we passed the audition. Don McNatt got the, one of the leads. He played Burger, and, and my brother and I were the he bass and drums in, in the band. And, and uh, actually, the rest of the band wound up not doing it. So, so at any rate, I'm making a short story long. So we, we, we were doing uh, here at Memphis State, and uh, Andy Hummel comes to see it. And uh, Andy and I talk after after the show, and and uh, he he said, "Hey, we're looking for a drummer. You want to come over and jam at what what was turned out to be Chris Bell's back house, and did, and you know, it opened up a new path for me. I mean, if he hadn't asked, if he hadn't posed that question, I wouldn't be here now at Arden. Pretty amazing. That is amazing. I mean, there are a lot of traffic directors, so to speak, in life, and and uh, Andy was a big one." So did they already have material, or did you guys work on that together? Well, it was, uh, when it, we had, that was just kind of a jam thing. Mm. Uh, we just played songs that we were all familiar with, you know, British Invasion stuff, I would think. And, and, uh, and that evolved in just a, the, a, kind of a core band being me, me Chris, and Andy. And, uh, and we would do some... Chris knew how to engineer at that point, and John Fry, I was 17, Chris was 18, John gave us keys to the studio, and so we could go in after, say after the Staple Singers and Terry Manning finished mixing, we could go in and, and just putz around and experiment, which Chris did a lot of, and as well as Steve Ray. and um, So we did that from March to maybe December of 70, and then uh, Alex was looking to move back to Memphis from New York, and, and uh, he came to see us at a VS, VFW uh, hall. It, uh, it wasn't a VFW event, I forget whatever it was, and, and I guess that worked out because Alex joined us, and, and uh, at that point we started working up original material. And, that it was exciting before, but it was really exciting after that because I'd gone from you know, it's one thing to be to play drums covering somebody else's song because the drum part's there. But to see these guys create guitar parts of their own and, and then, uh, you know, be looked to to create drum parts and stuff, that's, it got challenging and it got interesting and, and uh, a little, uh, a little kind of daunting at first. But, you know, I, once they started presenting songs, stuff like Ballad of El Goodo, I don't know, it just all clicked because it was pretty much there and then I would just go back and develop things and kind of fine tune stuff, so. Was um, your brother part of the band at any point? No, he wasn't, He, but he did, however, 
play bass on For You on Big Star's third album. Huh. Yeah, because, you know, Andy quit after Radio City, and so I brought Jimmy in to play bass on that. And how did you guys come up with the name? Arden was located on National uh, in kind of north part of Memphis, and there was a Big Star grocery store right across the street. There's a Big Star, and then there's a Sweden cream, which was kind of like a an independent Dairy Queen or whatever, and and uh, I think Alex, maybe Chris and Andy, maybe Alex is part of it. I don't know. I think they John didn't like people smoking in the studio, so they went outside and you know to to share a joint or something probably, and and uh, lo and behold, there's Big Star, <laughs> and I guess it could have been Big Star Sweden Cream and. They uh, decided on Big Star. And the whole pretense, you know, number one record was a reference to a chart position. It wasn't the fact that it was our number one record. Okay, so which one of you did not know the story about Big Star and how they got their name? Zach, did you already know that story? I mean, I've scoured, <laughs> I've scoured the far corners of the internet wondering what uh, kind of upright, upright bass was used on some of the tracks on Big Star 3rd, so... <laughs> Not a surprise, but pretty cool hearing Jody talk about no it, doubt. getting that straight from the source. <laughs> we could have Mike edit out the part where I admit I had never listened to this band oh. ever. <laughs> so me, oh. I didn't know. <laughs> Go oh, figure, I didn't know. <laughs> That's embarrassing. Don't, don't bring it up. <laughs> we won't tell That's anybody. That's the least embarrassing thing I've done in this office. That, so. <laughs> That's like, why'd you hire her? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just go home. Oh, okay. Bye. <laughs> oh, to be you and be able to hear those albums for the first time. That's <laughs> exactly. actually what I'm thinking. That's, that's it. That's, it's all about perspective. Yeah. Okay, so while we're talking about the origins of the band, I think it's uh, really cool that Jody brought up uh, the ardent president, the founder of that uh, record label and recording studio in Memphis, and that's John Fry, who uh, I always uh, had a, a big appreciation for this guy, kind of underground, didn't make a lot of noise about his own career, although he uh, recorded and engineered some amazing groups over the years in that little studio. Um, he was also one of the very first folks that we interviewed for the NAM Oral History Program. So he really set me straight as to some of the uh, important uh, innovators in recording and studio design that I otherwise probably would not have known. So uh, very, very cool to have that opportunity. Uh, John Fry was born in 1944 and passed away in uh, 2014. Uh, on December the 18th, which uh, ironically was just six days away from when John uh, Hampton, who was the engineer also at Arden, passed away, just a couple of days from each other, both of which I got to interview on that day in 2000 for the NAM Oral History Program. So interestingly, sitting in the exact same uh, recording studio with Jody and talking about these guys was uh, really kind of surreal in some respects because he had a lot of admiration for them, certainly knew them more than I did, and was able to uh, provide me with background information and funny stories and, and insight as to why these guys were so magical and what they produced and created there at Ardent. So that was a whole other aspect of the uh, interview that you'll hear me asking about in addition to his own career just because wow we had this wonderful opportunity and this is probably a perfect time to plug the fact that we have a ardent studios tag as of 
today. <laughs> <laughs> With the three people that we'll be hearing about today. Yes. Uh, so you can ch- <laughs> you can go online and check out um, some other interviews tied to Jody Stevens through that Ardent Connection uh, by visiting what web address, Mike? That would be nam.org, n-a-m-m.org slash library. So where are we to go next? I think Mike should tell us. Next up, we're going to hear a story about Radio City and then Jody talking about uh, his first impressions with John Fry, how they met, and then John creating his own studio. And Radio City kind of worked its way into that too, though I don't think it was intentional. Andy Hummel came up with Radio City because he thought we had a lot of radio-friendly songs. And back then, if, if, if something was like, say, something was a drag, something was disappointing, you'd say drag city, you'd tag city onto the end of something. And so, you know, he thought it was a lot of radio stuff, so he called it Radio City. It wasn't, I'm sure it, <clears throat> there, it probably worked better because of the Radio City Music Hall kind of aspect too, but yeah. That's really cool. Tell me about John Fry, your first encounter with him and your impression of him. John Fry, I was uh, 17, so that would have made John 25. And uh, so Chris Bell introduces me to John Fry in in, in his office over there on National. And, uh, you know, we talk, and, and he's this very, very matured, grown up, uh, um, not really formal, but but an adult, uh, and uh, so we talk, and and uh, it was kind of fascinating because he obviously was a really bright guy, and and uh, <clears throat> but there's one thing that struck me, and and so after Chris and I, I think we walked on into the studio, and Chris shut the door in the studio. I said, I looked at Chris, and I said he sounds so much like Jimmy Stewart. And Chris said, yeah, 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 everybody tells him that, so don't tell him that. (laughs) So that was my first encounter with John Fry. And what did you later um, learn about his background and how he came to creating his own studio? Wow, probably not till a few years later, really. Uh, But then, you know, of course, John, the story is John started it when he was 14 at his parents' house. He, uh, his parents converted the garage into kind of a proper play space, if you will, and, and John Fry and, and, and Fred Smith and John King, three playmates got together and I think they, they got in, they bought some shortwave radio stuff and I think they were doing pirate radio, doing like a little pirate radio station on shortwave and, and um, John thought, <coughs> well, gee, if we added some mics, we could record some bands. And so at 14, John, and, and I guess Fred Smith and John King all came up with the, the name Ardent and the logo, and, and uh, it was incorporated. And John Fry had his first single in his hand by the time he was a month into being 15 years old. I mean, a precocious kid, they all were. Of course, Fred Smith went on to found Federal Express, and John King went on to do album promotion work, and he, John's the guy who put all that that sort of infamous uh, uh, rock writers convention together 
here that took place in 1973 and Cameron Crowe and Lester Snell and Bud Scapa and, and uh, Richard Meltzer and all these sort of, you know, they came to be sort of iconic music writers were there. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm making a short story long, sorry. No, that's awesome. You know, it really is um, very interesting to me. We were talking about some of the music stores in Memphis. Also, not to be outdone, are those who created the recording studios there in Memphis. Uh, not only Ardent, which we're talking about in Focus today with Jody, but some of the others that we're going to be hearing about, uh, Stax in particular. Just amazing what was going on in that city probably best known in the early days of rock and roll and rockabilly is Sun Records there in town. Uh, but High was over there as as well as some others. Uh, and the, the American Studios, just a, amazing wealth of recordings going on. And what was cool is what Jody gleaned from that and was able to even as the drummer of the band way before he owned the studio, way before he was doing his own recordings and engineering, was still gleaning what he had learned from these guys and trying to produce the perfect album. What are your thoughts about that, Zach? I mean, you can hear it, can't you? Oh, yeah. A couple things that, that struck me listening to the interview with Jody. He refers multiple times to the shine and sparkle that uh, John Fry would get when he recorded. And you hear that influence throughout all of Big Star's albums, especially on the first two albums, uh, Number One Record and Radio City. Those albums are very deliberately treble heavy. Uh, it's not to say they lack bass, there's just a, there's a significant amount of treble. So he left that sonic footprint or uh, fingerprint on that. Um, you know, he <laughs> the other thing that strikes me is these these folks were really young. I mean, Alex Chilton was probably in his early twenties. I think Jody said he was nineteen at the time. Mm -hmm. So this reminds me of that. You know, if anybody's read Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, he talks about uh, like people like Steve Jobs and uh, Steve Wozniak and Bill Gates having access to these massive computers in certain uh, university towns, and they were able to tinker on those as children or young people at least. And that was one of the reasons they had such a leg up on other people in the, in the home computing revolution. You really get that sense when you, when you listen to this interview, you know, they were in, pre in the presence of a great studio at the time, and they were given some keys to really play around in there. And in fact, a story, and it's apparently not apocryphal, it's true. Chris Bell, uh, the other singer in Big Star and, and major songwriter on the first album, actually produced or put together number one record as a college thesis project. I hope he got an A on that because one of the great <laughs> debut albums of all time. Um, but again, it just shows you th these were young folks playing around in the studio and having a blast and making some of the, the most beautiful rock music of our time. What a thesis project. I Mine know, was awful. Right? I, don't, yeah. I know. Like, I, Chris Bell I made number one record. Yeah. yeah. I wrote like a 60-page paper. It was awful. <laughs> All right, so let's get back to our interview with Jody, and we're going to be hearing him talking all about his experiences creating the, his first record. So he rented a place over on National in 1966, and and uh, at the time he put that console in, he he uh, the the guy he was talking to um, was a Spectrosonics kind of uh, guy, and and he told John, he said, you know, you should get what Stax is getting. 
so stacks can come over and work and their engineers don't have to learn a new console. So we did. And uh, it was there from 66 to 71. And, uh, you know, Al Bell was trying to grow stacks uh, into like an Atlantic or, or Columbia records. And, and so he was signing lots of artists and having tremendous amount of success and hits. and. You know, the Staple Singers being one of those, and, and uh, not to mention Isaac Hayes and, and those folks. And, and uh, so John, uh, you know, s knew that there was a demand for two studios. So uh, in 70, he bought this property over here and then built this building from scratch. And we were here, we moved in Thanksgiving of 71 and, and have been here since, 46 years or something, a while. Were you here when they moved in? I was. You were part of it. Yeah, I was part of it because that was 71 and I'd been around since March. And so we started, we started number one record, we tracked it at the old studio and then we overdubbed and mixed here in this room actually. Not this console, but uh, <laughs> in this room anyway. And what was that experience like for you? Thrilling. Because I, I, it's funny being creative is 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 can be uncomfortable, and uh, but when you kind of get through it and and come up with something uh, that you like, it's it's really exciting. Um, so yeah, we and again we'd go out on the studio floor and do things and record things and come back in the control room and John just had this had such an amazing set of ears and 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 with was so good with all kinds of processors and knew how they work because we have we have EMTs here plate reverb and we have real echo chambers here and we have all kinds of things like Fairchilds and and UAs and and a lot of different kind of processing gear back then and John was a creative guy so he he would just make it shine, make it sparkle, um, so it was awesome. And what was it like in, in the band? I mean, we hear a lot of stories about rock bands and, and getting along at first and then sort of growing in different ways, but you guys seem to always be on the same page, at least the first couple of albums. What was that like for you? I think, well, you know, Chris, <clears throat> Alex joined and we did uh, number one record and then Chris left the band, and it wasn't, there were no personality problems. Um, it was just Chris thought that the focus would be on Alex, because Alex had been in the box tops and the writers. You know, Alex was that kind of common denominator. A music writer would say, you haven't heard of Big Star, but you've heard of Alex Chilton, because he was in the box tops. And I think Chris thought he might have to live under that shadow, and so Chris left the band. Uh, we all stayed friends. And then actually Big Star sort of drifted apart. And then John King got us back together to do this Rock Writers convention that I mentioned. And uh, just, he's, rock, rock Writers back then were our only audience. Because John saw to it that they got the, our, you know, number one record. And, and they all wrote great, or at least most of them wrote great things about it. So. I, uh, John King talked us into doing that, and so we came back together and rehearsed a little bit, and 
and played that. I think we were, I just saw it as being an underdog. And we, there was no real intention of anything, I think, uh, with regards to what we might get out of it. It was just going to be a good time. And uh, so we played that, and, and everybody knew the songs, the lyrics, and, and just went nuts. Uh, you know, the, the free bar, the open bar probably helped. And uh, so we thought, oh, well, let's do another record. And so we kind of came back together and uh, got Radio City together, and which we had already probably demoed a couple of songs that were going to be on Radio City anyway. So and we're starting to work up things. So uh, yeah, Radio City came together and we did that. And, that was a good time. It was an, it's sonically something different, and we were a three-piece, so the approach was different. You know, there's more space to maybe do things with as a drummer, and uh, so. And then Andy quit after Radio City, even before its release. I think we all three went up to New York and did like a Columbia just picked up distribution, so we did a few days at Max's Kansas City and then come home and I think Andy just thought we'd, he could never make a career out of it so he quit and went back to school full time, which he and I were doing anyway but part time. And, and so uh, that left uh, Alex and me and, and uh, well I just, I just loved the process of recording and Alex so we just clicked musically, and, and as I did with Andy and Chris, and and so it was you know, there was that high that come with you know creating whatever drum part with for something because Alex, Alex always had these brilliant songs and melodies and and um, so he and I did the third album brought it just brought in different people like my brother on for you and a guy named Tommy Cathy played bass on a lot and. Carl Marsh, I, I, I brought Carl in to, to do string arrangements for, for You, a song that I wrote. And because um, I was thinking, you know, Eleanor Rigby and the strings on that, and that'd be cool. And I knew Carl had those talents as an arranger. And so, and then, so brought Carl in to do that. And then Alex thought, Wow, that sounds good. You know, maybe we should try it on a few other things, and that's how Carl wound up doing strings for the other songs on the record. So Carl did the strings uh, on the record, and I would love to just talk a little bit more about um, since we have the uh, big star's biggest fan in the building with us, Zach Phillips, joining us. Oh, I thought you meant uh, me. <laughs> oh, sorry. That, and the second. You have, to, you have to listen to the albums first, Elizabeth. Oh, <laughs> super. Okay, I'll go home. <laughs> okay, so what from that the first album comes to mind when you think of the magic of the band? Big Star's first album, to me, is one of those albums that seems totally fully formed and fully realized out of the gate um you know a lot of great artists just don't have great debut albums uh number one record is a great debut album every song's perfect again that metaphor or i, I guess description that jody has of every of the sparkle and shine of that studio is throughout it both um literally and metaphorically in terms of the, the sonic landscape of that album. It's just a, a perfect album. So many songs came off that album. Um, 
that, you know, we've heard in commercials or we've some band that we love is covered. So it's an amazing album. And again, the, the fact that Chris Bell did it in part as a college thesis project is just a, a fun little aside. Well, and I like the flow of it, too. If you listen very carefully and after you've heard it about a dozen times, you realize there's really a very interesting thought process that went into what song follows the next. And I think that's a, another key. It kind of goes back to the the early days of uh, albums, uh, LPs in the 40s and 50s when they called them mood albums. Yeah. Um, there's not too many rock albums that are mood albums for obvious reasons. But I think that Big Star was able to accomplish that, at least in their first album. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a- absolutely. Um, the, the Everything from the sequencing to the production, um, you know, there's a, there's such an attention to detail on that album. Yeah. It's it's really amazing to hear something so fully realized out of the gate from a, a band. So I think uh, up next, we're going to talk a little bit more, have Jody fill us in on uh, John Fry and uh, how he had this great vision. And interestingly, we hear this quite often in the music industry about uh, some mentor seeing something in you that you didn't even know you had in yourself. And I think Jody was a little bit surprised that there was a marketing position open at the uh, Ardent Studios for which John really felt he would be perfect for. So let's hear that story. And then we did that, and then, you know, we just I just didn't see a way forward after that. And so I, I left and just went back to school full-time for a minute and played in other bands and finished school and did weighted tables. And, and in 19, in December or November of 1986, I called John Fry and told him I'd used him as a reference for a, for a res, on my resume and and he said you know great I'll say some nice things about you and he we hung up but he called me back pretty quickly and said wait a minute we're we're creating a position here it's we're starting a production company and we want somebody in marketing for the studios to raise the you know wave the flag go to New York and LA and and solicit business for the studios he said why don't you come interview and I did and after about three interviews with a guy in a suit, uh, who was the guy that headed up the video department here, because they were that was all corporate stuff, and and um, <clears throat> I got the job. I don't think that guy wanted me to hire me, but John, probably I think overruled him, because a couple of things, you know, by that time it's it's. Big Star was known to to certainly music writers and 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 uh, people that were pretty heavy into music, like A and R people would be. So and then you know my major at, at Memphis State was marketing. So the two kind of worked hand in hand, and I could, in some part, call the A and R folks in New York and L A. and and uh, get them on the phone. Others had to work a bit call like 20 times and they finally pick up but they also had you know probably a hundred other people trying to get their attention uh but i don't know i'm just kind of rambling well that's interesting so what was that era like for you and in, in that beginning uh working with john again john's always been a mentor mentor uh all his life, that's he. He just came by it naturally, I think, and so I continued to learn 
things from John and how to pursue things. I never quite got his attention to, to detail or methodology. He always had a method. So Zach, let's take just a second to talk about the recording of Nature Boy. What comes to mind when you hear Big Star's rendition of that song? can't believe they pulled it off so well. <laughs> you know, take, take a, uh, a song like that, kind of part of the American songbook and adapt it. It turned it into this this um, sort of atmospheric rock ballad. Mm. Um, was it, it really surprised me the first time I heard it. And it also speaks to the, just the, the haunting quality of Alex Chilton's voice. I mean, Alex Chilton's voice should not work as well as it does on paper you know, on those big star albums, it's a little thin, it's almost boyish, it's high, um, and it's absolutely one of the most just affecting voices I've ever heard. And, you know, that is a, a haunting cover version of that song. You know, what's really amazing to me is that there are certain songs that if they're over covered and, and uh, too many people record it, then it kind of loses part of the magic of uh, the communication that it's supposed to be. And this song is perfect example of how two different people can record the same song. It's the same lyrics and it means completely yeah. different things. Nat King Cole, of course, recorded the original in 1947 and owned it. And when you listen to his recording, you think, wow, that's his voice, right? That's, that, that's the definition of Nat King Cole's voice. It's not his biggest hit. It's not the one that you necessarily hum along to. You don't know all the words, but my gosh, that song to me so always defined really the power of Nat King Cole. The same way you just described the big star, you know, that lyric is perfect for that. And the meaning of the one line, the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return oh. is unbelievably different between those two versions. And if I can say so, when I hear Big Star cover it and Alex Chilton sing that line, I don't I don't I don't necessarily believe it. I think he is struggling with that issue right, right then, you know. Right. He's 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 looking for that. He's seeking that. And he is singing that line with um total solemnity. It's it's more of a to, plea and a wish when he sings it. Absolutely, as opposed to Nat who owned it and you feel, it. "Oh, he learned that lesson. Yeah. Now he's departing it on us," right? Yeah. It's the exact opposite what Alex does it. You think, "Oh man, he's struggling like I am it's, with it's that." It's heartbreaking. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's, it's unbelievable. And of course, the bass hitting the drum at the end is always always kind of <laughs> cool too. Anyway, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that beautiful recording and uh, very special for sure. John was a pilot as well and uh, he had his instructors rating in, in the 70s they gave us flight flying lessons and the, the analogy is that before you would actually get in the plane and start the engine and, and get on the taxiway and then the runway there was a checklist of things that you would go through and John was always very thorough about that and uh, so, and that's why he made such an amazing engineer too, because he was always very thorough about, one, his knowledge of how gear worked and signal flow. And, you know, if you turned a knob, what does it actually do? Why does it work? Why does it create the sound that it does? And he was always very methodical in his mixing and, and, and uh, his engineering. And, and um, 
So I, uh, but at any rate, I don't know. I just, I lied. I, one thing, maybe the biggest thing for me is because I was a shy kid and, uh, um, and was still maybe a little shy, even though I was 31 maybe when I came back at Arden, was in, 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 and I kind of figured this out in the 70s too, as, as I, was, I was sort of shy and I'd, I'd sort of looked around at the people around me and thought, well, it must be okay. You know, there's some good folks around me. And, uh, and then I get to Arden and this, all of a sudden it's business. And, um, and I th I'm thinking, well, you know, must be okay. John thinks I'm okay. And John thinks I'm gonna work in this business role. And, and it worked. Yeah, we uh, saw success with the production company and, and uh, business started kind of rolling in from the trips I'd make to New York and LA and the relationships. So it was all good. What were some of the projects that you worked on that you were particularly enamored with or felt were helpful to the studio? Well, the first was John Kilzer. And uh, John Hampton and Keith Sykes kind of co-produced that and Hampton engineered it. And uh, so I got, got on a plane with cassettes and went to New York and played it for some A&R people, then went to LA and played it for Teresa and Sonata Geffen, and, and she liked it, but, you know, maybe was looking to hear more stuff from John, and, and uh, so maybe six, seven, eight months later, I get on a plane again and, and uh, make the rounds and get to, back to Teresa and Sonata Geffen and, and played her some demos, and she really liked it, and played it for, she played it for Tom Zutat, and they wound up signing John, and, uh, the good thing that, aside from getting Kilzer signed, was that they liked what Hampton and Keith Sykes did, so they wound up producing that record here at Arden, so we wound up with studio time sold. Hampton, you know, got hired on as the engineer and co-producer, and Keith got the work out of that, and we also, here's an example of what we can do at Ardent. Uh, as a studio, and uh, Teresa Anzanat happened to be married to Steve Earle, and Steve was looking to to work outside of Nashville, <clears throat> maybe something with a little more rock edge. And uh, and Teresa, by that point, had met Joe Hardy, and and Joe had worked with ZZ Top on a lot of records, and so Steve wound up working with Joe Hardy here on Copperhead Road, tracked it, and. Mm -hmm mixed it here and then Joe mixed the hard way here. Uh, so that one of the relationships and then there were a couple of other bands that came and along the way, uh, I'd and the next was Tora Tora, a place with A&M and, and Brian Huttenhauer there. Um, I'd already met Brian, uh, uh, God, Robin Wilson uh, of the Gin Blossoms because I'd gone to South by Southwest and just heard them and really liked the band and gave Robin my card and stuff. But uh, <clears throat> Brian Huttenhauer signed them to A&M and, and had gotten into working on their record and, and their debut and apparently got a lot into their budget and didn't have anything to show for it that he was happy with. So he called us and said, hey, you know, I've already spent this many thousands of dollars here's what's left, uh, you know, would you see if Hampton will produce this? And they're at Arden. Of course, we said yes, and 
Hell, what was left in that budget was probably twice what anybody has these days. And uh, so Hampton wound up working with the Gin Blossoms and produced all those records, and and uh, and that was from Tora Tora. And then Hampton mixed Soundgarden's uh, the little video they did, Soundgarden Live. He did that, and wow, I think there was something else. I don't. It was just we're building relationships and 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 introducing to people people to talent that was here. Um, so it yeah, it started. I guess the last group I pitched was uh, I was Skillet, and that was to Andy Carp at Atlantic, and Andy signed them. And the Skillet had been doing maybe 120,000 for us on the Arden label. And uh, Arden in 1995 had a Christian label and a mainstream label, and Skillet were on the Christian label. And but at that point they were doing things that I thought would work in mainstream and and uh, would work well with a major and. So I'd been playing things for Andy anyway, and and uh, so Andy picked Skillet up, and they went from 120. We kept Christian distribution, and they got mainstream. But their first Atlantic partnership was 350,000, I think, and the next was over 500, and the next was over a million. So that worked. I uh, yeah, it was those those were, you know, th those were different times. People had a lot of money and labels were making money and they were spending money and so it uh, it's still a good time it's just you have to be a bit more frugal about things so that was Jody talking about John Fry hiring him as a uh, in a marketing position and um, projects that he worked on and next up we're gonna get into songwriting a little bit well the first thing that comes to mind when I think of the songwrite writing process for Big Star are just some of the individual elements. I mean, there's so much that went into these productions, if you will, especially the third album, that I think is worthy of taking a quick pause and kind of getting our bearings on this. Zach, tell me about uh, the third album. Big Star's third album is um, not only my favorite of the three and a lot of fans' favorite, um, but I think in some ways it's their most influential. It's their most postmodern. It's their most disjointed. Um, it cuts the deepest. It was put together just by Alex Chilton and Jody Stevens, um, along with the producers and engineers who were in the studio. It never had a final track listing. Uh, Alex Chilton never agreed on the final track listing, although I think the kind of quote-unquote official 1978 release has a perfect track listing. It's a fantastic way to listen to the album if anybody can get their hands on the vinyl or uh, program it, you know, digitally as a playlist. The third album is, it's very unique. I don't know that it's totally been reproduced, although a lot of bands like, you know, Wilco have sort of tampered with the same kind of uh, format. Right. You know, you have this beautiful Baroque pop album that's also incredibly disjointed, mm -hmm. incredibly dark. I mean, one of the songs is called Holocaust. Um, it's about, you know, this isn't in, in a, uh, the person who made this album knew his band was breaking up. Mm. Let's put it that way. Right, right. Um, Nighttime, which I think, you know, one, one of Big Star's most famous songs is on there. Um, but this little beautiful gem in the album is for you, Jody's song. Hmm. And it's just this autumnal, beautiful pop rock song. Jody sings it beautifully. 
uh, one of the things he talks about was bringing in the strings. I I had actually thought he arranged them, although it sounds like he had some help on that. But funny enough, bringing in the strings for for you, uh, according to Jody, really jump-started the use of strings on that album. And it's funny because I think the metaphor we talked about beforehand, Dan, um, it would be like somebody giving, you know, the edge of U2 a Roland Space Echo pedal. <laughs> you know, it's such a foundational sound to the album. Um, so hearing Jody, it was like, it was like hearing him directly, um, getting, getting your hands on the Dead Sea Scrolls and reading directly, hearing him talk about that. That was a, a piece that I was unfamiliar with. So Yeah, amazing. And yeah. the space, you know, one of the space. concepts that I brought in this conversation uh, before we were rolling is, to me, when I listen to the third album, which is one of my favorites also, I hear space and, you know, maybe part of it is production. They just wanted to dump the strings <laughs> at one point, the pots all go down, right? Right. Uh, the faders. But that is a magical element to me, you know, because not every rock band did that or knew to do that. And I think that that added an element that has always been endearing to me. And speaking of songwriting, uh, Zach, one of the things that we started doing here uh, for the Music History Project is reading some of the lyrics as it were written as a poem or just as a letter um, and not reading it from the point of view of wanting to sing along, but just hearing those words. So I've asked Elizabeth to help us with just a few of the words from For You, if you don't mind. A dramatic reading. No. <laughs> By Elizabeth Hale. Now, good lyrics. They probably work better as lyrics than poetry, just saying. But <laughs> This might be lyrics. a little easier than the last episodes for me not to sing along, yeah. but that's just a shot in the dark. <laughs> <clears throat> for you, when I come home so cold at night, you'll have the fireplace burning bright. Thoughts of how it's going to be and how I'll spend those cold, cold nights warm by you. And in these autumn days, I wander through the leaves, thinking of those winter nights I'll spend with you. Fin. Done. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that cool? It's, yeah. it's fun. Yeah, it's fun to hear. Now, if, We did American Pie that way, by yeah. the way, for <laughs> Buddy Holly. It was tough. awesome to <laughs> hear If anyone her. comes after me for copyright, Dan made me do it. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're doing in tribute. <laughs> well, and you know, you when you listen to this, it's, it's funny hearing those lyrics that way, too. You hear this in the interview with Jody. This is a just a sweet, tender human being. He lives. Right. He lived that song. Whoever the you know lucky person was, he wrote that song for. Um, he he clear those those were genuine emotions for that young man at the time. So has your position changed? I uh, I don't travel so much anymore because that same model doesn't work. Bands have access to so much now uh, that they don't. At that point, uh, recording at a studio was was maybe the only way you could get a recording of what you're doing, uh, and there was an expense involved in that too. Getting the attention of an A&R an person was really, really hard because they had so many people trying to get their attention. And just the expense of, of going to New York and L.A. and shopping things, and so relationships that I built through that. Uh, so all that worked for us, but it doesn't work in today's model because people can you know, essentially demo things at home and not quite like the experience here at all, but um, they can get their ideas down. They can develop audiences through the internet and uh, 
and live and but I mean with majors you still have to even more so now you have to create a bigger story to be signed uh, independence maybe not so much but um, yeah I, my, now my title is director of production and uh, here at Ardent and and um, you know I said uh, uh, back in wow maybe January of February of this year I was approached by an Austin band called The Reputations to produce their new one and, and they sent me a record and, and thought it sounded great, good players, great singers and I hadn't heard any of the new material yet but I figured it'd work and we scheduled a time for them to come in and, and by that point I have a band called Those Pretty Wrongs with Luther Russell, Russell out of LA and we'd released our debut record uh, last, well, May 2016 and I'd co-produced that with Luther and that was a good time, really good time. And So I was looking to kind of have that experience again and, and not play this time though and and just sit in the producer chair and, and uh, had that experience. That was awesome because the, these guys came prepared. I, it was a matter of that we had seven days to do ten songs, start to finish, track, overdub, and mix. And uh, they came prepared, and it was just filtering through all the good ideas they had because we couldn't use all of them. Um, filtering through the good ideas and kind of paring it down. When when I thought, okay, we have what we need, we don't need two more acoustic guitars or something, and. And uh, so that was a great experience. So I thought, well, you know, I'll hang my shingle out as a producer. And so that, that's kind of my mission now is, is to produce, yeah, get into producing bands and helping bands along that way. That's very interesting. That's cool. I was going to ask you if it's um, surprising to you that there continues to be interest in Big Star. Does that surprise you? Well, I'll put it this way. You know, I'd, I'd, I'm such a fan of that music and enjoyed being such a part of it that I figured, why wouldn't everybody else? <laughs> so am I, from that perspective, am I surprised? No. Uh, I, you know, Alex and Chris and, and these emotive voices and, and uh, these killer guitar lines and, and uh, you know, it's great songs. I don't know. September Girls, I mean, that that Strat intro, just that just rings out like a clarion color. So I don't, it's just amazing. And I didn't do that, so I can, <laughs> I can say that. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's exciting stuff to me. Nothing like a great melody delivered by somebody that you share some emotion with. What about your songwriting, like um, for you, things like that? How did that come about? Well, when I was looking to learn how to play guitar, and Andy Hummel gave me an acoustic guitar, and that actually owned, was owned by Chris and was used on the first record, and and uh, Andy wound up with it, but that's on its own, its own story, and and uh, so I was learning how to play guitar, and he gave it to me. He said, "Here, have this one." He didn't need it. He had another one. Um, so 
I did, Alex taught me some chords, and, and uh, so I put chords together and came up with a melody to line and, and lyrics, and that's how For You came up. Um, and what I'm doing now with those pretty wrongs is Luther and I, Luther Russell and I got together and, and uh, to play some Big Star songs at uh, the Big Star documentary screenings in L.A. And Luther said, well, you know, why don't we write some songs together? And, uh, you know, trust is a big thing. And, and uh, I was an admirer of Luther's and Luther's great, he's a really creative guy, piano, guitar, plays drums and, and uh, too. And so I had some ideas for a couple of songs, melody lines and lyrics, and I just called his phone and sang them to his voicemail. And he added, you know, music to them, guitar and that sort of thing. And then we, we you know, got around to, you know, I'd need some lyrics and Luther would come up with lyrics or Luther would come up with a song and, and maybe some of a melody line and I'd finish the lyrics and I'd do the lyrics and some of the melody line and I don't know, it's just great collaboration. Once the last song we wrote uh, together, uh, Mystery Trip, Luther said, do you have a, any lyrics at all? Kind of hanging around and thought, well, yeah, I've got this song called Mystery Trip, some lyrics and sent them to him and you know, early afternoon, in that late afternoon, he said, you won't believe this, but I already have this song, music for this song, and, and a melody line, and, and the lyrics fit right in. So it just clicked. I mean, it, some, of it's, some of it's discipline to sit down and do it, and some of it is just luck. Um, so, you, I mean, you have to be prepared. What is it? Luck is, is the combination of opportunity and preparedness or something. Uh, so, but that's, yeah, songwriting, you know, it's just, it's a mystery, really. It's like, it's like having a conversation with somebody. How do you instantly put these words together to communicate? It's, uh, I guess if you hang around music long enough or if you have enough input, then these melodic ideas or lyrics come together. And for me, it's, it's, it's really having the discipline to, if I'm in a car and I think of a melody line, pull over and sing the melody line into my, you know, now we have recorders in our phones. You can record the melody line. If I have a lyric idea, sit down, write it down. You know, text yourself the lyric. But the, it's having the discipline to follow that idea right then, right there. Because if you wait 10 minutes, it's, for me, it's gone you think, oh man, that's such a great idea, I'll remember it, and then 30 minutes later it's gone, and I'm thinking, why didn't I write it down? But it's having that discipline, and you know, I don't know, there are a lot of songwriters out there that this isn't news to, but it's, to me, it's just, it's still a new kind of exciting process, and you know, we did that first record, and now we're like eight songs into our second that we've written so far. So that's, it's fun. It's, there's nothing like the whole creative thing uh, for ex excitement, really. It's kind of a high. All right, so that was Jody talking about uh, quite a bit about songwriting, and we're going to have Dan introduce uh, our next clip, which focuses a little bit heavier on John Hampton. 
So the um, the engineer that was sitting in the studio in July of 2000 at Ardent in Memphis, when I walked in there eagerly waiting to interview John Fry for the NAM Oral History Program, happened to be John Hampton, who I was a big fan of. In fact, I had no idea he was there that day. Um, so uh, after being a little um, giddy, I said, hey, can we spend a few minutes? And he was on his way out, spent maybe 10 minutes with me, but I, it was 10 minutes I won't forget. He was uh, uh, an amazing guy, uh, very warm, and I was really uh, very enamored with the opportunity to hear, here's the guy who was mixing Led Zeppelin and some other great albums and recording artists that went through the Ardent Studios in the 70s and was really John's best friend. And that was another kind of compelling uh, realization to me is that these guys not only worked together, but really got along very, very well. And so uh, back in 2000, at the, the beginning of the oral history program, again, it was a wonderful opportunity to have somebody who could kind of guide me. So I called him often over the years and asked him for advice. And so uh, when we had the opportunity to talk to Jody in that same very studio, um, some 18 years later, 16 years later, I asked him about John Hampton. I'd love to ask you about uh, John Hampton. I was lucky enough to interview him when I was here uh, 17 years ago, along with interviewing John Amazing. Fry, and both those guys had a big impact on me. I really was enamored with the whole idea of telling the story of engineers since that time, and I've interviewed many engineers as a result. And I just would love to, I didn't get to know him other than that one interview. And I wondered what sort of guy did you find John to be? Hampton, brilliant. I mean, he, he was, he was, he came up under John Fry and he was the same kind of guy. He had that same kind of brilliance. He had a, a he, like John Fry, had a great set of ears and, and knew, Hampton came up as a technician, I think first, and then in, got into engineering. So. He knew as also that when you turned a knob, why did it make the sound that it made? And uh, you know, signal flow and process—I uh, don't know all that. But he was just, and he could he could put all this information to good use because he had a great set of ears and how sounds work together and and uh, balancing and mixing and how all that it worked. Yeah, Hampton was brilliant. Great killer drum sound. Uh, other great sounds too, but. Uh, yeah, I think he was known for his drum sounds. Do you have a favorite story of John Fry, by the way? I, uh, John Fry is, he walks into Studio B, and, uh, and this is an example of how simple things can be in the midst of all this complicated stuff. And, all this big terminology with regard to audio and and so John Fry walks into Studio B and the engineers sitting at the console and and they look over to John looking for some advice and they say John how do I how do I get this vocal right I just can't you know I've boosted it at 2k you know the high end at 2 whatever 2db and I'm not an engineer so I and uh, you know, using this, and John just walks over to the console and grabs the knob, and he said, "Just turn it till it sounds good." <laughs> I, you just use your ears, you know. Don't worry about where it is in the scheme of things. On the, you know, 
whether it's one or six or two dB or three or whatever it is, it just, you know, pay attention to your ears. <laughs> Practical knowledge. So is there something in music you haven't done that you'd like to do? I, uh, yeah, I haven't written a, two albums worth of stuff worth of music and so we're about to complete that so that's you know that's certainly a goal and then uh, play some more gigs we uh, with the release of the first record actually we played some dates in in Australia right before that record came out and uh, we went to Spain and played New York and a lot of different Chicago and Portland and LA and Seattle and we just did this past May, I guess, did six dates in England. Uh, so yeah, I, I looked to doing our sec getting our second album done and and playing some more dates. That's where it's fun sharing this stuff with people and and uh, building relate continue to build relationships. Very cool. Well, this is awesome. Is there anything else that we should add? I. Uh, Oh, I don't know. This is this is the room where maybe I already said this. This is the room where Big Star mixed all its records and and including in Space, mind you, but number one record and and Radio City and third and and uh, in Space and I know, a lot of great stuff done in this room. Jack White brought the Rock and Tours Rock and Tours Broken Boy Soldier here on a eight track one inch tape. Hampton mixed that here and then he brought. Uh, White Stripes, Get Behind Me, Satan, and oh, eight track one inch, and we transferred to 16 track two inch, so they have a, a tr an extra track for automation, but he stayed at pure analog, and uh, I don't know, we just had a group called the Push Stars in, it's awesome in here, and over the years, a lot of, a lot of different, REM did green in here, the Afghan Wigs did Black Love and, and Gentlemen. Um, I don't know, Tom Dowd worked out of this room on uh, on a Leonard Skinner record, an Allman Brothers record, and a Primal Scream record, and another record as well. So a lot of folks, you know, Jimmy and Stevie Ray Vaughan did the Vaughan Brothers Hampton track that in here. A lot of history, you know, you're, this building's, you know, been around since 71, so 46 years, so a lot could happen. And like John Fry said, you know, uh, magic can happen here because it has. And it's, uh, you know, it's a great vibe to have in a room. And well said. Thank you so much for having us over. I really appreciate it. Glad to do it. Yeah, thanks for your interest. Cool. Sometimes it's really hard to get people interested in stuff. <laughs> I, awesome. uh, so I always appreciate the interest people have. So that's the conclusion of our interview with Jody Stevens. Just like Mike Manson mentioned earlier, if you want to check out this interview or any of our others in our collection, you can do so on our website. You can always drop us an email if you have recommendations and please rate or review this podcast. And final thoughts, yay. <laughs> okay, my, I'll go first on okay. final thoughts today. Um, this is a great opportunity to say that if my friend Zach Phillips didn't suggest that while I was in Memphis that we would stop and interview Jody Stevens. I'm sure I would get to it eventually, but I may not. So hats off to you for the great idea. Uh, I really appreciate your support. 
Thank you very much, Dan. I'm so glad you were able to get it. Mike, you want to go next? We'll just go around the table. Sure. Piggybacking off that a little bit, I think that shows the importance of recommendations with this collection. It wouldn't be nearly as big if we didn't have people like Zach and others at the NAM building and just friends recommending people that we may overlook for the collection. So Good point. It's, it's really a... a uh, a big deal when someone recommends an interview for us and it can sometimes lead to amazing interviews like this one. So what would they do if they had an idea? They can send us an email <laughs> at library at nam, N-A-M-M dot org. Nice. <laughs> Final thoughts, Elizabeth? Well, Zach's next. Do we want him to go last? I thought we would oh, let okay. him go last. He's, <laughs> All right, final thought. <laughs> I thought that everybody did such an excellent job with this podcast that I'm going to listen to all three albums. Wow. Yay. I think you should. Thank yes. you. Thanks. We made, we made an I won't be doing anything else today <laughs> job at work is done. Yep. besides listening to those albums. Don't bother me. All right, Zach, final that's, thought. That's a good use of two <laughs> and a half time. hours. I like that. <laughs> um, final thought, just there were a couple times during the interview that Jody had said something to the effect of, well, I'm kind of uh, making a short story long and all I could think is th this is one um, humble, accomplished person. And um, I, I, every time he said that, I just thought, no, no, Jody, keep going, keep going. We want to hear more, want to hear more. So it was a really strong interview. Yeah. Thanks for getting it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Great stuff. All right. Once again, thanks Zach for joining us and thanks to all of you out there for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye. 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 -bye.